0: power for your glory alone we pray in Jesus name amen as you turn to first Peter 4 we pick up where we left off last week how would you live if you knew when you would die like if you knew uh, you had 50 more years like how would that affect how you live now Uh, would you oh well got a couple years at least I could just kind of throw away have a good time before I have to get really serious about being a productive citizen in this world? Or maybe uh, it would like light a fire under you and get really serious. Okay, I've got 50 years. I can make the most impact I can make, but I can make a big impact in 50 years. Or, Or what if it was five years? What if it's sooner than you thought? Like would that overwhelm you and make you despondent and apathetic? Or would that really fire you up to get busy because you only have five years left? Well, thankfully, we don't have that kind of information available to us because we couldn't handle that. God doesn't want us to know that because we just can't deal with that kind of information. But we have a section in 1 Peter 4 that explicitly tells us to consider how you live now because the end is coming. Every day is one day closer to the end of our life and our own personal eternal destinies. And every day is one day closer to the return of Christ and the final eternal state, or as some people call it, heaven. So how should we live? First Peter 4, beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining, Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We're going to focus mainly on verses 10 and 11, but to set the context, let's review a little bit. As Jesse walked us through verses 7 through 9 last week, Peter begins this section of Scripture by saying, The end of all things is near. The end of all things is at hand. And this idea of the end times is a prominent idea in the New Testament. If you read the book of Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples had witnessed His resurrection. They had spent 40 days being taught by Jesus about the kingdom of God. And the disciples asked Him in verse 6, they said, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of, to Israel at this time? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But this is what you are to do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They were wondering if now was the time for him to fully consummate, to fully bring into reality this Kingdom of God that he was teaching them about, that he had demonstrated throughout his ministry. And Jesus says, No, it's not time, but it's also not for you to know the time. You have a job to do. Go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Basically, go spread my gospel as far as there are people. And that's what the church has been doing for 2,000 years. But Jesus also came announcing in Mark chapter 1, the beginning of his ministry. So Acts 1 is the end of his incarnational ministry. Mark 1 is the beginning. And he says, after John was arrested, John the Baptist, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying in verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. It's here already, but not yet fully realized. In this period of time that we are in after the incarnational ministry of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Spirit of God to indwell the people of God, the church's birth in Acts 2, this period of time, this in-between time that we're in right now is called the end times, the already not yet. The kingdom of God has already come because Jesus has come. Everything necessary for our salvation has happened. Nothing else needs to be done for salvation to happen. Jesus has done it all. Now we just proclaim the good news, but yet it's not fully in place. And you only have to live a day in this world to realize this ain't heaven. This is not, thank goodness, this is not the eternal state. Even on your best days, when everything goes right, you realize it's going to be even better than this. There's still hurt, there's still pain, there's still brokenness, there's still sin. And so we have not yet fully experienced all that God has for us to experience. And so we're in this in-between. And Jesse mentioned last week, we've been here for 2,000 years, essentially. That's a long time for end times. How much longer will we go? Well, no one knows except God the Father. In that passage, Jesus makes that explicitly clear. In other passages in the gospel, Jesus is even clearer. Where Jesus says, only the Father knows. The Son doesn't know. The Spirit doesn't know. It's it's one of the the few places where you see a clear distinction in the scriptures between the persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the the Holy Spirit. There's one God, three persons. If that's new to you, confusing to you, let's talk later. We don't have time for that right now. But that's, that's the, what the Bible clearly proclaims, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus says only the Father knows it's by his authority when the end will come, when the Son will return. It could be another 2,000 years. It could be tomorrow. We really don't know. It doesn't matter if you're a-mill, post-mill, pre-mill, pan-mill, pro-mill, whatever your view of eschatology is, you don't know. What we're waiting on is for Jesus to return. That's the next thing that's going to happen. And some who grew up in the church have seen things like Kirk Cameron movies and read books like Left Behind, and you think we're waiting on the rapture of the church. Well, the rapture of the church will happen when Christ returns. And if that's new to you as well, let's talk later. Let's talk later about how we can understand that from the scriptures as well. So some passages in the New Testament make it seem like it's still far off. So Matthew twenty four fourteen, the good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. You, if you hear a lot, you hear us say this verse a lot because we're praying for that to happen, for the good news of the kingdom to get to all nations, all ethnos. That's not geopolitical nations like the United Nations or the Olympics recognized, but that's people groups. So there's about 200 geopolitical nations. There's about 17,000 people groups within those 200 nations. And there's about half of those, about 3 billion people, who have yet to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're you're thinking like, okay, well, the church is working to get the gospel to those people, but we've got 3 billion people to go and 7,000 people groups to go, that's going to take a long time. So it seems as though it's still far off, but I can promise you the father's not up in heaven with a checklist going, okay, one more check. When they get that last one, there's a mystery to how that's going to be accomplished and when that will be accomplished. God working in ways that even the church, as much research as we have, as much as we know about the gospel and the people groups that are reached, there's still a mystery. We don't fully know everything God's doing. So it seems like it's a long time, yet it felt so imminent and close to the early church that some in the first century had quit their jobs and were mooching off other church members because they thought Jesus was about to return. I mean, really, if I knew for sure Jesus was coming back this week, I I mean, I don't know if I'd go back to work. You know, just, hey, I'm going to take this week of vacation. I'm going to do some other things that are really important before he returns, Well, that's what they were doing in Thessalonica. And Paul says, if a man won't work, he can't eat. Go back to work. Quit mooching off others thinking Jesus was about to return. And so we live with this very biblical appropriate tension while we don't know and can't figure out. And anyone who tells you they know when Christ is returning, you can automatically dismiss them as wrong. We don't know, yet we are expected to live as though it is imminent. It's close. So the soon return of King Jesus to establish the eternal state, time will be up to repent and believe the gospel. Full accountability will happen for all of us. That should appropriately feel weighty to you. Like, that, that should not be something that, oh, you know, well, well just another guy out there talking. Like, there's, there's this deep core of our being that, okay you're right. The Bible does proclaim this. We can't just shrug our shoulders in apathy at that unless our hearts truly are so hard and callous to the things of God that we need salvation. Like with the big gulp and a spirit wrought conviction, I can't keep wasting time. I can't Keep putting off my repentance and trust in Jesus or maybe my convictions to love and live for Jesus. Like if you've been playing around with salvation and repentance and kind of just living for yourself, having a good time, I'm going to keep him over here, God. You're, you're here where I know you're at if I need you, if I need you to bail me out. But just stay over there and let me do what I want to do. That's where you're at in your walk with him. Wake up. Wake up. Time is running out. Jesus is returning soon. Or, you'll be going to him soon. That's another reality. Because while believers have lived and died for 2,000 years, believing his return is imminent, billions of believers have died and gone to be with Jesus, waiting for him to return. Or, I hope it's not true of anyone in this room to be separated from Christ for eternity. That's the bad news of the gospel. Without Christ, we are separated from Christ for eternity. Life is fast, church. Like, I remember being 18 vividly. I remember at 18 thinking to myself, I've got a decade full of vivid memories, clear memories. And at 18, that impressed me like, man, I got a whole decade under my belt. look at me, I'm growing up. I probably wasn't that dorky when I said it, but I remember just thinking to myself, like, gosh, a whole decade of clear, vivid memories. And I remember going into college and like, I'm never going to get out of college. And boom, done. Married, boom, done. Kids, boom, done. And here I stand, literally at midlife, I've worked about half of my most income-earning, productive years, I've got about half of them to go. And when I say my age, I'm like, that's weird. I don't think I'm that old. You have to get old to understand what I'm talking about. Like, when I'm 18, I'm like, when I get to that age, I'm going to be old. And now I'm there, I'm like, I'm not that old. It's just weird. It's just flying by. I can't believe 2016 was seven years ago. 2018 was like, what? How did? Wh-? It feels like it was yesterday. And so... Life is a vapor, life is a blur, and Christ could return soon, or we will be with him soon. Wake up, church. In whatever ways we've been shrugging our shoulders and throwing away time and opportunity and resources for the shallow and the temporary, wake up, the end is near, it's at hand. Peter wrote that 2,000 years ago. We're 2,000 years closer to that. And Peter didn't write that knowing, well, I'm writing this, but I really know we've got 2,000 years, I'm just going to trick them. To taking it serious no he thought it was imminent and that's how we're supposed to live it's how God calls us to live that his return is imminent or us going home to him is imminent another helpful way of thinking about it we we on average get 70 to 80 years here that feels like a long time especially if you're young we have a lot of young people in our church that's awesome but you think you have plenty of time but we're going to be in the eternal state for eternity, which means we'll pass 10 trillion years and we'll just be getting started. What's 70 to 80 years compared to 10 trillion years? Like this life is a, a not even a blink compared to eternity. And then we get some instructions on how to live knowing that the end is near. So this is Peter setting all this up with this Live with this mentality. The end is at hand. So we pray. He talked about that. There are many connections between prayer and knowing the end is near. Uh, One example, Luke 21, be on your guard, Jesus says, so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and the worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly. So if you're just living your life for yourself, indulging in every sin or, or care of this world, then all of a sudden that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth, but be alert at all times, praying so that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The writer is pointing out, we're told here to pray for strength to escape all these things. What things? The minds that are dulled from carousing and drunkenness and the worries of life. We're not going to escape the troubles, but we're praying for the strength to escape, not wasting our time on carousing and drunkenness and the worries of this life, the the pointless pursuing of the frivolous. So as we consider the end being near, we pray for God to give us the strength to live lives of purpose and intentionality. He he goes on in that passage in 1 Peter 4, maintain a constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Like imagine a kind of love between one another that's so strong that relationship and fellowship is kept even though we sin against each other. We're so quick to be like, you sin against me? Done. And that's if it's a sin of omission or even an unintentional slight. Sin intentionally, oh, we're really done. We fight to maintain the unity of the bonds of peace we share. We're, We're hospitable to one another. We invite each other into each other's lives. We share our lives. And he says, without complaining. Are hospitable without complaining. You, you host the mission of the community, everyone leaves, there's no complaining that happens, right? Right? You drive home from this building, no complaining happens on your drive to home or to eat lunch somewhere, right? What love for one another can do is cover that, he says. Love covers a multitude of sins. Hey, I notice things about my brother and sister but I don't have to complain about it. I can just let love cover it. Like literally what does complaining do? What does it accomplish? Does it make you feel better? Does it make you love that person more? Does it endear yourself to them? Like other than hardening your heart towards someone we're to love and since complaining rarely happens alone, but with others, then we're just hardening their hearts about the person in the situation we're complaining about what about venting like can i vent to someone i trust and it just stay there and not be gossip well i think it depends on the heart behind it like dna is a, is a safe place where brothers with brothers and sisters with sisters can come together and and share like I, I i see this and i'm wrestling with how to to deal with it and it's safe because you know that what you talk about there stays there You don't have to worry about other people sharing your struggles because you've entered like this covenantal relationship in a DNA group. That this is a safe place. And so I can, hey, I'm really wrestling with this. My mind isn't made up. I'm not fully uh, uh, settled on how to respond to this, but I'm just wrestling with what do I do about this situation? And it's not gossipy like you won't believe what so-and-so said or did. Not that, but it's I'm wrestling with how to deal with this. Can y'all brothers help me? Can y'all sisters help me figure out how to view this in light of the gospel? So there is a place and a way to do that so that it's not gossipy and complaining and grumbling. That the Bible says we are not supposed to do. When then should sin be covered in love? Because he says love covers a multitude of sins. And when should sin be confronted in love? Well, that's a great question. Peter, who wrote this letter, was confronted in love by Paul when Peter was showing an ethnic superiority, or we'll call that racism, which is what it was, in Galatians 2, favoring the Jews, ethnic Jews, over the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Paul calls him out in Galatians 2 and says, you... Peter, my brother, are out of step with the gospel. This is wrong. And there comes a time and a place where we should confront in love. And there comes a time and a place when we should cover each other's sins in love. So how do we know the difference? One author put it like this. Love for the sake of friendship covers, ignores, blows off, makes light of a multitude of sins when those sins are of the nature of a shortcoming But the same love will risk the friendship with a bold rebuke when the behavior contradicts sound doctrine, when the sin denies the gospel, when it misrepresents the magnificence of Christ as something ugly and inhumane. The author goes on, An impulsive rebuke when covering is called for scars the body of Christ. A cowardly covering when a rebuke is called for weakens the body of Christ. But our gentle covering of a multitude of shortcomings with rare but brave rebukes for betrayals of the gospel strengthens the body of Christ. In other words, there should be far more covering of sins and love than rebuking sins and love, confronting one another. Because often we like to think we are the Holy Spirit. I need to be the one who convicts you of your sin. I need to be the one who fixes what's wrong with you. So let me step in and do the work the Spirit can do instead of trusting and waiting for the Spirit to work in His people. There's a time to confront. Most of the time, we should cover in love. So in light of the fact that the end is near, how should we live? in a way that demands a gospel explanation the non-gospel way of living in light of the fact the end is near is to indulge or hoard or have as much as you can because who cares it doesn't really matter or in fear or seeking your own security let's build a bunker and prep for doomsday or maybe it's to to live in uh, as the world does in light of the fact the end is near maybe it's self-salvation if you've ever seen the movie groundhog's day that's That's what that movie's about. Let's work through the stages of grief to eventually save myself because I've become the best version of myself. And for some, that's how they respond to the reality that life is short. I've got to be the best version of me, so I'm just going to save myself through my hard work and effort. But Peter's advice isn't about self-preservation, but about being in healthy communities. So we pray, we love, we're hospitable, and we are so radical in that that, yes, we still sin, but love's got that. Like, your sins aren't so bad that I'm going to stop loving you because my sins aren't so bad that Jesus stops loving me. And your shortcoming and your flaws are so minor compared to the love and hospitality that I get to share with you that even when I could complain, I won't. Because it just hardens my heart towards you and doesn't keep me soft and kind and gracious towards you. How radical would this community of people be who live like this? Like, how transformative? Just living out verses 7 through 9. Like, we talk all the time about being a church that does know the Bible, but we're not so obsessed with Bible knowledge that we forget we're really supposed to be Bible doers most of all. Yes, we need to know the Bible, but knowledge by itself doesn't transform and often become an obstacle if we're just satisfied with knowing facts doing the bible is dependent on the spirit being alive in us and empowering that obedience and if we just sought to obey verses seven through nine we would see radical change in us and in our city as the spirit of god lives in just three verses it been a year just doing three verses but peter goes on it's a whole lot of context peter goes on to talk about serving one another in verses 10 through 11 so picking up verse 10 just as each one has received a gift use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of god so if anyone speaks that it be as one who speaks god's words if anyone serves that it be from the strength god provides so that god may be glorified through jesus christ and everything to him be the glory and power forever and ever amen peter goes on to talk about serving the body of christ there are a few places in the new testament that speak about the body of christ having these gifts, spiritual gifts, to be used to serve one another so that the body is as healthy as possible. You have three entire chapters in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. You have part of Romans 12, part of Ephesians 4, and here in 1 Peter. And Ephesians 4 says God has gifted the church with leaders with certain skill sets for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. He says, uh, verse 11, he gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, so those five offices, a uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, Two, verse 12, equip the saints for the work of ministry in order to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So those gifted to be leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, Equip the membership, saints, for the work of ministry. And if we don't do that, then we're just doing all the work, and the saints are watching like spectators, and the health of the body is hindered. But if the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are trying to equip, but the saints are resisting the equipping, then the health of the body is also hindered. So we have to work together. The equippers have to equip the saints have to do the work of the ministry. And obviously there's a ton of overlap there, right? We're not trying to make distinctions between the clergy and the laity. There's a ton of overlap because leaders are still saints and members doing work as well, right? And some members are also using these gifts and leading in these capacities. So honestly, we're trying as a church to find that healthy balance again. Like coming out of covid when we began to meet in this building on Sundays again back in the fall, I don't remember. The years are just a blur, 2020, I think. Um, there were all kinds of restrictions and considerations we were trying to cover and put limits on things like kids ministry. We had this weird setup where the, these chairs were spread out and far apart, just odd looking. Every time we came, it felt weird. Some people were uh, staying home to be super careful, which was fine. That's totally Okay. Uh, Some of our own leaders were in tough spots themselves, and they needed time to rest and heal and and help each other uh, along. So it felt easier for quite a while for us in leadership to just do a lot, just handle a lot of it ourselves. We'll show up, we'll set up, we'll show up, we'll do everything. And then we got into this prolonged bad habit of doing too much. And so now we're trying to course correct, asking the saints that are the crossing church to step into roles of service when we gather on Sundays to let us equip you so that the body can be as healthy as possible, right? Of course, this idea of being gifted to serve the body is not just talking about when we gather on Sundays, but being in the life of the body of Christ. But I do want to make a special emphasis about Sunday today because it is an important part of who we are and what we do here on the Lord's Day. It's an important part of our mission to reach our city, a Bible Belt city who sees Sunday morning as the hour you attend church. Like, if you left here right now and you just went out shopping, driving around, eating in a restaurant, there are gobs of people not sitting in rooms like this this morning. I don't know the last time you've done that. I've done that enough that I know, like, my goodness, there's a lot of people for churches to reach in a churched city, right? Right? And it's, maybe they went earlier that morning. Maybe they, uh, their kid's sick and they're running to the store. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. You're not just driving around like, sinner, sinner, what's wrong with you? Why are you not doing that? Like, that's not your heart. You're just giving grace. You don't know who they are and their story, right? So uh, it's, it's not just um, um, the people who aren't attending church. But, but we know that if you talk about church in our city, in our region, this is what people immediately think of. Sunday morning, a room like this doing what we're doing. So it's a huge part of reaching our culture. And we can't just dismiss that. Uh, We can't just condemn or throw stones or shame our culture for not fully grasping the New Testament understanding of the church. We've got to meet them where they're at. So when the crossing was started, we so wanted to be a church that was organized as missional communities that would reach people through missional communities and see missional communities multiplied. That was our heart and desire. It was so much a part of who we were that we didn't do this on a weekly basis for like 18 months which is crazy who would do that yeah maybe it was crazy that's what we did we were so passionate about seeing church done true to the new testament true to the book of acts in such a different way so let's just have mission communities and we met like this once a month and then every other week and then eventually every week and we wanted to reach people through mission communities and we have done some of that but by and large most of the people who have become a part of the Crossing Church over the last nine years have come through Sunday morning because it's still an important way to reach people in our culture. We can't just dismiss that, even if we don't want that to be true. So we'll start there. So, so what we want what we do here to be healthy and vibrant and a genuine experience with the truth and reality of Jesus and his gospel. And that takes a lot of people helping to foster that kind of environment. There's kids that need to be loved and cared for, and the more people we seek to reach with kids, the more people we're going to need to care for kids. Right now, we're very limited in what we do with kids because we're limited in volunteers, honestly. We don't have enough people to help out, and so we can only go to certain ages. We're limited in space, and that's another issue we'll have to deal with later, and so we need more people helping out with things like that. We, We want people to be involved with creating a hospitable and welcoming environment, people to help with things like sound and and um, setting up and cleaning up and all these sorts of things. So the, the question that I would ask you to consider this morning, even if you're not an official member, how can you help this happen each week? Yes, also consider how you can use your gifting to bring life and value to your missional community, your DNA groups, your neighbors, and so forth. But how can you help this happen each week? Could you do one thing? We think if everyone who considers himself a part of the Crossing Church did one thing, that would take care of almost everything. Joseph has put together a Google Doc and posted a link on Workplace for everyone to sign up. There's the link. You can just type that into your phone and go sign up right now while you sit there. Or we'll text it to you later. Or if you're on Workplace, you can click it. If you're not on Workplace, if you consider yourself a part of the Crossing Church, uh, uh, then we want to get you on Workplace. It's a free social media type app that's private. It's just for us. It looks like Facebook. Facebook built it. Um, so let us know and we'll get you on Workplace. Several ways that you can help on Sundays uh, kids, cleanup, setup, music, sound, hospitality. There's some things for non members, something for members, but there's plenty to do. Um, and many things that don't require you to be a member. But as you consider, as you click, as you sign up, consider this passage and how you're best wired and gifted. Like if you come and say, hey, I really think I need to start preaching on Sundays. Okay, well, that's going to be a long process. (laughs) Okay, it's not going to happen next week. Uh, But hey, I can move some chairs around. That's where we're going to want you to start. Let's start with chairs. Let's start with the simple things. Um, But Peter says in verse 10, each one has received a gift. Not just elders or pastors or people who have been to seminary, uh, or people who have been a Christian for a long time, each one, if you are a Christian, if you are alive in Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you. You have been gifted by him in certain ways to serve. Every single believer. And the purpose of that gift we see in this passage is to serve others as good stewards of God's grace. So we have received his grace We have received this gift, and I want to be a good steward, a good manager of it. So what am I going to do with it? I'm going to use this gift to serve others, to build others up, to build and equip the body of Christ to be healthier. And it has a particular flavor for you. He tells us there in verse 10, as good stewards of the varied grace of God, which means God doesn't gift us all the same way, right? There, there are ways that God has gifted you. He hasn't gifted other people. So it's unique to who you are. It's unique to your personality, unique to your story, unique to your skill set. And Paul lists a couple of examples here, if you speak, if you serve. But you can go look up other passages, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, Romans 12. And there are more lists of spiritual gifts. And there's no exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. Like you can't go to the New Testament and say, there's 30 gifts, that's it. No, it's more than that. They're all given as examples of how this can look in the local church. So how should you figure out how God has gifted you to serve the body and help the body to grow and mature? Well, first pray. If it's the Spirit who gives the gift, then why don't I ask the Spirit of God? Holy Spirit, how have you gifted me? I'd really like to know so I can begin to use this gift to serve others and build up the body of Christ and make it healthier. 1 Corinthians 12 makes it clear the Spirit of God is the one who gives the gifts. We don't make it happen. We don't, it's not a menu, okay, I want that, that, and that. It's not how it works. Because we're foolish, and we're sinful, and we're not wise, and we don't know what God knows. And we may choose the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. So we trust the Spirit to gift us, because He knows us best, and how to use us best in the life of the body of Christ. But He gives graciously, so we pray and we ask Him. And then I would say... Begin to pray, and then begin to look around and find needs and opportunities and start helping. In what ways are you helping that are fruitful? Like, this seems to be helpful. Like, if you pick up chairs, well, you're taking out the chairs into the street. That's not helpful. Not fruitful. Like, it's, you're doing it in an organized way. You know, my kids may, my younger kids may love to pick up chairs, but they're too little and they're not strong enough yet to do that. So it's not fruitful right now for them to do that. Maybe later. Just just an example, is it fruitful? Is it helpful? Is the body of Christ saying, yeah, I'm glad you're doing that. That's actually helping us out. Is it beneficial? And then are you filled with joy when using that gift? Are you just grumbling and complaining the whole time? Because you just are doing it because no one else would do it, and you just kind of hate it. Now, it could be that's part of your sanctification. You need to repent. You need to have a heart transformation. It could be you're going through a tough season. You need to come out of that season. All those things happen, but ultimately, are you like, I really think I have to do that. I have to do that because I think God's really wired me to do that and called me to do that, and that's how he's gifted me to serve. There's this deep joy. So there's fruit, and there's joy as you're employing that gift because you're operating as God's wired you to operate. Sam Storms, a pastor in Oklahoma, has written some of my favorite stuff on spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, He says this about discerning how you're gifted, look for a need and meet it, find a hurt and heal it, be alert to the cry for help and answer it, listen for the voice of God and speak it, identify someone's weakness and overcome it, look for what's missing and supply it. And what you'll find when you do that is the power of God, the energizing, enabling, charismatic activity of the Holy Spirit that will equip you perhaps only once, maybe forever, to minister hope and encouragement to those in need. So if you're still wondering what your gifts might be, act first and ask later. Just pray and get, get busy. Now These are the gifts given. These are not earned rewards. They're given to us graciously, freely. Paul says two main categories, serving and speaking. We know here there are many more, but serving gifts can be prophecy, apostol, um, apostleship, tongues, interpretations of tongues, exhortation, word of knowledge, words of wisdom, Gifts of service could be giving, administration, leading, mercy, helps, healing, and miracles. Yes, we do believe all gifts are still functioning for the church to experience today. But we're also incredibly cautious because those gifts, some of the more miraculous sign gifts, have been and are still being abused even in our area. And so we have to be careful. We're open to whatever the Spirit of God wants to give us to build up his body and get the gospel to whoever needs the gospel but we're careful because we we don't want to be a part of the abuse that's happened when those gifts have been deployed and it was a problem in corinthians uh, when that church was deploying some of those gifts so for us as a church it's still a journey we walked through first corinthians way back in 2018 you can go back and listen to us teach about that then so all that is done with God's power. We're not trying to operate in these gifts out of our strength. That's how you end up in the chaos of the Corinthian church. Everyone trying to outdo one another and love is missing. No, God gives us the gift. God empowers the gift and we're using our gift. We feel him helping us, using us. And so God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. Whether it's a speaking gift, it's very public. You're kind of in the spotlight. Or a serving gift, you're behind the scenes, but equally as important. God's giving the gift. God's empowering the gift. God's being glorified through the use of the gift. In other words, the spotlight doesn't ultimately shine on us, but on him. Because his power is made evident. And that closing statement, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Guys, that's a great way to sum up the purpose of our lives. Not to build our lives to put the spotlight on us. Not to build our lives consumed with just self, being so self-absorbed. We just can't get beyond self. All we're thinking about is ourselves all the time. But how has God created us to glorify him through Jesus Christ in everything? Do we need self-awareness? Absolutely. Do we need to all be as healthy as possible? Absolutely. But not build our lives to be so self-absorbed that we don't get beyond ourselves to glorify God. And glorify God through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. If taking care of us isn't leading to God being glorified through Jesus Christ in everything, then is it possible that we are really just worshiping ourselves? and making our lives about ourselves, not getting beyond ourselves. There's an essay in the New York Times that came out in June from a psychiatrist who says, Taylor Swift has rocked my psychiatric practice. You can go read it. I think you have to pay a dollar. She has done such a good job in her lyrics going deep and expressing healthy mental and emotional uh, language that most of the clients that this woman sees comes in quoting lyrics from Taylor Swift. It just made her go back and look up lyrics and, okay, she's really digging deep. This isn't just a a pop singer with cool music, right? And to some degree, you can see if you wanted to be the healthiest version of you, listen to Taylor, watch Ted Lasso, and you can be pretty awesome. But what's missing From Taylor and Ted Lasso. May God be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. Who's getting the glory? I love, I like Taylor. This is hard for me. (laughs) But there's only one person being worshipped in those stadiums. It's not Jesus. As fun as it is, I went, okay? Did my Swifty thing. As fun as it is, it's spotlights on one person. There's limitations to just that. How is God getting the spotlight in our lives? How are we experiencing his power and not just the same mental health awareness and language that everyone's experiencing because of Taylor Swift and Ted Lasso? It's for us, it's clear from these verses. You want to live a life that glorifies God through Jesus Christ and everything, live your lives as though we're about to stand before King Jesus give an account. The end is near. As though time to repent and believe the gospel for the billions you've yet to hear is quickly approaching, and we need to live life with a sense of gospel urgency. As though life moves fast, God, help us to prioritize what you prioritize. I don't have much time left, and you don't either. I don't care what age you are. And let's get to praying, get to loving, get to covering sins in love, get to showing hospitality without complaining, get to serving one another with our gifts guys, this is always possible because of the power of Jesus. So to whatever degree you're like, oh, man, I just stink at all this. Well, then good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is here. The power of Jesus Christ is here to take you from wherever you're at, transform your heart, and set you on a new path of obedience. It's always possible to change because the power of Jesus is always available. And it's only possible through Jesus. We have if we're going to glorify God, Jesus has to be alive in us. We have to be following him, obeying him. That's how we glorify God, by obeying his commands, obeying his word. And whatever ways you struggle with that, you felt at that, it's okay. We we share in this meal every single week to be reminded that yes, we are so sinful, Jesus had to die for our sins. But we are so loved, he was glad to die for our sins. And his sacrifice of his body and his blood is sufficient to change everything. So Jesus, I pray for everyone who's here that we would would take heed this passage of Scripture and allow the Holy Spirit of God to examine us to see where are we spiritually. Are we living with a sense of urgency and priority about what you love and what you care about? If that's because we've never come alive in, you, uh, in Christ Jesus, we've never repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus our Savior, I pray today for anyone here who needs to do that, that you would cause that to happen right now, right where they sit. They would realize they're a sinner who needs a Savior. See Jesus as sufficient and call out to him for salvation.